You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Psalms. Every word, every scripture is God-breathed, and it's there for a reason. Sometimes it's for our rebuke. Sometimes, as Paul writes to Timothy, for our instruction. But here, I believe it is so important to understand that this psalm is a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm, in that Jesus fulfills all. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. These are some of the many treasures we get from the Bible, which every page is God-breathed and useful for teaching. In today's message, Pastor J.D. will teach you how some of the Psalms are messianic in nature and reveal to us the character and nature of our Lord. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in Psalms chapter 110 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. All right, Psalm 110. These are short psalms, and Psalm 10 is very interesting. It starts off very interesting. We're told it's a psalm of David. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord. What? Well, what this is, is Jesus saying to David, that he's not just the son of David or the descendant of David, but he's also David's Lord. That's why the first Lord is all capitalized, and then the second Lord is a capital L. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, verse 2, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord, verse 4, has sworn and will not relent You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, verse 5, is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. A little bit graphic. We'll talk about that in a moment. He shall drink, verse 7, of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Interesting psalm, Psalm 110. It's actually the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And this, by virtue of it being a messianic psalm, in the sense that it is specific about the coming judgment when Jesus Christ returns. Key, (laughs) the coming judgment. 
there is a coming judgment. What's interesting about this psalm, again, is the specificity of it. I don't know if you noticed as we read through it. But Jesus is seen four ways. First, as divine. Second, as king. Third, as priest. And fourth, as judge. And it's this fourth one that I want to spend a little bit of time talking about. Here's the takeaway from this psalm. If you're asking yourself the question, which sometimes I ask myself when I come to a place in God's Word where I just kind of wonder why it is that God deemed it necessary to include in the pages of Holy Writ. In other words, God, why is this particular psalm, this chapter in our Bibles? There has to be a reason. We know that Scripture is God-breathed. We know that God, and you'll forgive the silliness with which I, you know, say this and demonstrate this, never imagine that God is looking for ways to kind of fill up pages in a book. <laughs> no, every word, every scripture is God-breathed, and it's there for a reason. Sometimes it's for our rebuke. Sometimes, as Paul writes to Timothy, for our instruction. But here I believe it is so important to understand that this psalm is a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm, in that Jesus fulfills all. And He's coming back in judgment, in judgment, to establish His kingdom. You know, this last week as I was Thinking about the Lord's return, kind of got a little convicted in a way, because in fact it was just today, I was in the store, and I'm walking around just looking at people, and just kind of observing them, and asking myself the question about them, I wonder if they know the Lord. I wonder if they're saved. Because if they're not saved, and the Lord comes, they will be left behind, and they will be here when the wrath of God is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world during this seven-year tribulation. And there was a, ah, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of a, it was a sadness, but it was also a conviction concerning my own selfishness. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I really want the Lord to come back. We talk about it every week. I mean, for me, the Lord can't come back soon enough. But here's the problem. Were the Lord to come back as soon as I want Him to, to come back, which would be, well, now would be a great time. <laughs> would you agree? Well, wait a minute. Do you realize the unthinkable horror? that will ensue on those who are left behind? Now, when I say it's selfish, I mean, if I can say it this way, it's a sanctified selfishness. I mean, I know that my sons, my daughter are saved. They're walking with the Lord. They're going to be, you know, taken up. My wife and I are going to be taken up. I mean, I have loved ones, and of course there are, you know, many who I uh, also know who I know would be left behind. 
dear friends who are not believers. And it's kind of a bittersweet thing. And the longer the Lord tarries, as it were, the more there is a chance that these whom I love, who don't know the Lord, have the potential to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. So, I mean, I don't want them to be here when we're taken out of here. You know, we, we think about, we talk about, especially here at this church, the Lord's return with great fondness, great excitement, great longing. <laughs> As Paul writes to Timothy again and says that there's a crown that awaits all those who long for His appearing. And I would venture to say that we as a church are numbered amongst those of whom it can be said, we long for His appearing. We're watching for His return. But there's another side to that. Because when He returns and takes us out to be with Him and catches us up in the air when the dead in Christ rise first, it will turn a page, for lack of a better way of saying it, and it will be at that point that the judgment of God begins on this Christ-rejecting earth. Listen to what Revelation chapter 6 says, verses 14 through 17. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island, I think about the Hawaiian islands, <laughs> was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And listen in particular to verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? This is what David is writing about in this Messianic Psalm, in Psalm 110. So as I was preparing for tonight's teaching, the Lord just kind of put on my heart and led me to the book of Revelation for a number of reasons, one of which is that it is the only book in all of the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it, hear it, and take it to heart. Yet, interestingly, it is probably one of the most misunderstood books in all of the Bible. I would venture to say that Satan has succeeded, sadly, in getting many Christians to stay away from the book of Revelation under the banner of, it's a hard book to understand. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. It's one of the easiest books to understand when you understand that there's a divine outline that the book is written in. This divine outline is actually written in chapter 1, where John is told to write that which he has seen, past tense, that which is now, present tense, and that which is to come hereafter, future tense. In the original language of the Greek New Testament, it's the word metatauta, which simply means 
after these things. It's an important word, as we're going to see here in a moment. If you don't mind, I want to share with you how beautifully, how magnificently this divine outline is written throughout this entire book of Revelation, making it so, I guess again, for lack of a better word, apropos, and as such, such a blessing. I have taught through the book of Revelation, I think now five times over the years. In fact, the last time I taught through the book of Revelation was when we first started a Bible study that would soon become Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. Uh, it was in 2004, and it was on Friday nights, and it was at the Aloha Pregnancy Care and Counseling Center. And we went through the entire book of Revelation, uh, and every time I teach through the book, read through the book, even talk about the book, I just get so blessed. And I hope that you will be as blessed as I am when I share this with you. So we have this divine outline, past, present, and future. And the whole book can be divided into those three parts in this divine outline. So chapter one is that which John had seen, past tense. He was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and glorified, and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, present, write that which is now. What's in chapters 2 and 3? Oh, the seven letters to seven physical churches that at that time were in a postal route in what we know today as modern-day Turkey. So you have these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, starting with the church of Ephesus. This is the Ephesian church. We just got done uh, studying through Ephesians before we uh, started in Philippians. So there's Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, or Pergamos, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Laodicea, of course, the seventh church. Now, many a Bible commentator has had much to say about these seven churches. They represent, represented, past tense, these seven physical literal churches in Asia Minor, again modern day Turkey. But many suggest, present company included, that they also talk prophetically about the church throughout the ages starting with the first church that left, not lost, their first love, the church of Ephesus. Going all the way to the seventh church, the lukewarm church, the church that was neither hot nor cold, the church that Jesus is on the outside of knocking, asking to come back in to sup with them and them with him, knocking for them to open up the door. This was the church, and interesting, the name Laodicea, the name being the nature. It's a combination of two English words we know as laity and diocese, meaning that the laity decided, made all the decisions. The laity ruled. They were in charge. They called the shots. In the King James Version, in these seven letters, you can see it, not in the other translations, unfortunately, but to all of the seven churches, with the exception of Laodicea, 
Jesus has John write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Sardis, and so on, till he gets to the uh, church of Laodicea. It does not say to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Instead, he says, very key, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. It's not even my church anymore. I'm not even in that. I'm trying to get back in that church. But this is the lukewarm church. This, this was a prosperous church. This city of Laodicea was so wealthy. It was the banking center, the fashion center, which is why Jesus alludes to and makes references to. You think you're clothed, but you're naked. You think you're rich, but you're not. You're poor. Yes, we're the banking center. They were so wealthy that they built these aqueducts in order to bring the hot springs, the natural hot springs, which you can visit today in Turkey. I wouldn't recommend it right now, by the way, with Erdogan there. (laughs) But in Hierapolis, which is mentioned in the book of Acts, they had these beautiful, I mean just stunning, natural hot springs. And so Laodicea was so wealthy, they built this aqueduct system to get the natural hot springs from Hierapolis to route it down to Laodicea so they too could have these hot springs in Laodicea. The only problem was by the time the hot springs got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And so Jesus makes reference to this and says, Oh, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but you're not. You're lukewarm. And it's really strong in the original. It's not spit you out of my mouth. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. It's nauseating. I mean, that's pretty strong, right? And this is the church. This is a church. They call themselves Christians. And Jesus is on the outside knocking to get in. So... This is chapters 2 and 3, and this is important for this reason. Because from chapter 4, verse 1, on through the end of the book in Revelation chapter 22, is all future. So chapter 1 is past, chapters 2 and 3 present, chapter 4 on is all future. And what does chapter 4, verse 1 say? Basically, here's a paraphrase. John, at the sound of a trumpet is told to come up hither. After these things, chapter 4 verse 1, metatauta, John hears the sound of a trumpet and he's told to come up hither. I would submit that is the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 and 5. Okay, now Here's an interesting side note. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I am firmly convinced without even an iota of a doubt that the rapture of the church absolutely must happen before the seven-year tribulation. It's because of this divine outline in the book of Revelation. So here it is. The word church is mentioned 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You know how many times the word church is found from chapter 4, verse 1 on? Thank you. Zero. Nada. Not there. Why? 
Because, chapter 4 verse 1, John is caught up. And now everything he writes about is that which is to come, metatauta, after these things. Oh, what does he write about? Ooh, chapter 6 through 19, the seven year tribulation. Have you read chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation? Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It's all about the horrors of the judgment in the wrath of God during the seven year tribulation. And did you know that the word church is not mentioned one time in chapter 6 through 19? Why? Because it's all about the tribulation and the church doesn't go through the seven year tribulation. So that's chapter 6 through 19. Chapter 20, the millennium, the kingdom age, that 1,000 year rule and reign where we reign with Christ here on earth. And get this, and this, this jams people's gears and it's kind of a <laughs> interesting study and maybe another uh, topic for another time, but the earth will be what it was like before sin entered the world with Adam and Eve. I wonder what Hawaii is going to look like. That's what for 1,000 years the earth is going to live. Now, we're going to have our glorified bodies during this 1,000 year reign. And by the way, and I don't want to get too um, discombobulated here, but there is a reference in chapter 6 or 19, I, I can't recall the chapter off the top of my head, where we affectionately refer to them as the tribulation saints. These are the ones that are martyred for their faith, beheaded for their witness and their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They are not the bride. It is so important to make that distinction. They, they will be in heaven. They will be in eternity future. They will be in the millennium, but they are not the bride seated on the throne. They are saved servants at the throne. They're not the bride seated on the throne. They're the saved saints serving at the throne. There is such an important distinction to be made. So in other words, will there be a chance that if people are left behind that they can still be saved? Yes and no, and I'll explain why I say that. And I've got to be really careful here, lest I be misunderstood. Yes, but it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your head. I heard one say it this way, if you're not going to live for Christ before the seven-year tribulation, what makes you think you're willing to die for Christ in the seven-year tribulation? So someone flippantly, cavalierly says, well listen, if the rapture happens and you guys are taken up, I'll pretty much be able to put two and two together and I'm just going to get saved. How do you know? How do you know? Thanks for taking the time to listen today to In Spirit and Truth. Pastor J.D. has been taking us through the book of Psalms, detailing the author's messages of hope and pain, joy and sorrow. You may have found today that you identified with the sentiments expressed in today's passage. And if that's the case, we encourage you to explore more. Dive into the Word yourself and ask God to reveal additional love and personal truth that He knows you need to hear today. 
If you'd like to hear more of Pastor J.D.'s teachings in Psalms 2, you can find them online at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Are you a part of a community of believers? If you haven't yet found a church that you can call home, we'd like to urge you to remedy that soon. A church family can be a source of support, a cheering squad, and most importantly, a group of faithful prayer warriors. This is also a place you can give of your unique talents in support of others as well. If you're in the Kaneohe area, you have a standing invitation to be part of our family of believers. Come join Calvary Chapel Kaneohe on Sundays and Thursdays for a time of worship, fellowship, and in-depth Bible study with Pastor J.D. You can find out more at our website, inspiritandtruthradio.com. There's a lot to discover at our website, including a link to our mobile app, social media pages, and Pastor J.D.'s Mideast Prophecy Updates. That website, one more time, is inspiritandtruthradio.com. That's all we have for today. Join us next time to continue learning from the book of Psalms, right here on In Spirit and Truth. <music> 